0: don't create the problem for you and the company to defend later.
1: Correct. And definitely don't, don't be like this guy at the Walmart in a Iowa and tell the person I'm not giving you the promotion because you're a mom of young children. Like, so even if you're going to discriminate,
0: don't, don't admit (laughs) to it and and don't give them, certainly don't put it in writing. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Well, this is the last Thursday of January, 2024, which means it's time to review recent news in the HR world. Joining me this week to recap a few interesting people-related stories is Patrick Richter. Patrick is a partner at Rigby Slack, an Austin-based law firm serving businesses across the U.S. Patrick is board certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization in Labor and Employment Law, and he represents employers nationally in all types of employment disputes, including class and collective actions. He also has considerable experiences with matters before the National Labor Relations Board and in assisting clients with union avoidance. Welcome back to Good Morning HR, Patrick. Thanks for having me. It's appropriate that you're my guest this month because way back in episode 77, last January, you and I discussed the Biden administration's then proposed rule concerning independent contractors. And here we are a year later in the final rule was proposed or was published on January 11th, and is expected to take place, uh, take effect in around March 11th. So, the final rule is going to could impact everything from gig economy workers like Uber drivers and freelance writers to real estate agents. So, let's just recap: What does the final rule define as an independent contractor, and how that's how is that different than the
1: previous uh, the previous rule? Well, it's more like how it defines what's what's not an independent contractor, right? Basically, there's a presumption that workers are employees, and they're only independent contractors if uh, they're economically independent from the company that they're providing services to. To be honest with you, this feels like Groundhog Day to me in a lot of ways. You know, it's another rule. It's another kind of... Hyped as if it were a big change, but you know we're just sort of reshuffling the the deck chairs on the Titanic, for lack of a better analogy. You know, I've been doing this for for thirty years, and there's always been a multi-part, multi-factor test for independent contractor, and you know the courts and, and agencies say there's no emphasis on one particular factor or the other, and so you're always in this feels like loop of, are they an employee or an independent contractor? And how can we, if we want them classified as contractors, how do we mitigate the risk that somebody comes back later and says, oh no, you know, I was misclassified. I should have been an employee. So economic dependence,
0: if I have, you know, let's say I'm, I'm just a solo practitioner, or an HR consultant, and I primarily serve one company. And, you know, that company calls on me with a pretty regular, you know, maybe I, I you know, have some regular tasks for them and they call me in for uh, special consultations and maybe I handle their employment, employee relations and just, you know, the stuff that an HR consultant does. But I just primarily have one, one, one client. It's just project work, but it's it's pretty consistent. Am I at risk as the, uh, uh, you know, as the employer who's, or as, as the company who's working with this 1099 contractor of, 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 being in trouble for, you know, for not paying them. If it's some week they work 50 hours and I don't pay them overtime.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe is the answer. Um, you know, the, the way that the new rule says it lays out the six factors instead of five and it says it's opportunity for profit and loss uh, the, the nature or the amount of the investment by the worker and the company um, where you're in this situation and you're hypothetical, you're getting tripped up is the permanence of the work relationship, which which I think is a big factor. And I think it ignores, you know, some reality. I think there are businesses where people are happy to be labeled a contractor, work kind of when and as needed, but but like you were just saying, only work for one company. Um, and, you know, since this rule came out, I've had a couple of conversations with friends and clients and, and thinking about it on my own. And I don't know how you draw that line, like when that's okay and when it's not okay.
0: I think it's okay when everybody's happy, right? And it only, only
1: becomes no. a problem when, somebody, <laughs> when 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 the the, the contractor is suddenly unhappy with their circumstances. I, I think that's exactly right. You know, you get you get in these situations where somebody's a long term independent contractor and they like it, and then and then the relationship ends for one reason or another, and then they go talk to somebody and they oh, you know, I should have been classified as an employee all along. Um, you know the other, the other, like other three factors are always the nature and degree of control, which is another one that gets hung up on, and then whether the work's integral to the business. I think in your hypothetical of being an HR consultant, that's that's probably not the case. You know, you're ancillary to what the business's main mission is. But when you have, you know, for example, a software company. Um, that would hire independent contractors to come in and help write code. There's no question that those guys are, the work they're doing is integral to what the business is doing. Um, and then the last one is skill and initiative. And I don't know how you how you weight that. Um, I, I don't even know if the people who wrote the rule know what, know what they mean when they write that. <laughs> well, and there are two
0: lawsuits now, at least, against the DOL's final rule. Uh, and they both... Pretty much read the same. I think they both say that it, you know the rules too ambiguous, and uh, you know uh, that's what the, the legal arguments they're making are. But in on the practical side, publicly they're just saying this is going to wipe out the gig economy, or this is going to you know pull a lot of people into employment who don't want employment, uh, freelance writers and people like that.
1: I don't. I just don't know that it's that big a sea change, to be honest with you. Um, it is tweaking the rule. It is, you know, the old rule, the one they put out in 2021 had a particular emphasis on a couple of the factors over others. And this is trying to just reweight that. Um, I, I don't see it as, you know, a massive shift. So in other words, if you were a gig economy worker in 2023 and nothing changed, you're at the same level of risk to being... being classified as an employee in 2024, I think, as you were six months ago. I don't know that it changed that much. I think it was the National Association of
0: Realtors published on their website advice to realtors who don't want to get become employees of the brokers that they work under. You know, they work under these broker licenses and use the broker's branding in their marketing and stuff, but are apparently largely independent contractors. And I didn't, I didn't know that. But one of the things that caught my eye that sounded dubious in that, in that blog article on the, on the NAR website was that you should have, uh, the realtor should have an independent contractor agreement, uh, that, you know, states, you understand you're an independent contractor and, uh, and you're not our employee. Does that make any difference under the regs or are you waiving, you know, is that employee actually waiving their rights to claim later?
1: I don't think it would operate as a bar or a waiver, but I I would certainly do it. Um, I think if you have workers who you're going to engage as independent contractors, you should definitely have an independent contractor agreement with them. Um, And it's just another piece of evidence of the, you know, the of the nature of the party's actual relationship. Um, And so someone who goes to the trouble of sitting down across the table from you and reading an independent contractor agreement and signing it and making all those acknowledgments um, it's just one more thing that's helpful if after the fact they try to change their mind and say, oh, I I should have never been an independent contractor. But I I don't think, it's certainly not determinative. And the other thing I hear a lot is that if you're going to be an independent contractor,
0: our company will require that you have a corporate entity that we pay, that we're paying a corporate entity rather than you directly. Does Do you think that really makes it will make a difference or pr-
1: help an employer's defense? I think similar to the contract. I think, you know, it'll help. Um, it certainly shows that at the time they entered into the relationship, the parties, you know, considered and, you know, contemplated and addressed this issue of being an independent contractor. But, you know, I don't think I'd, the DOL in particular is ever going to look at that and say, oh, you had a contract and, and you set up a, your own LLC. Oh, then hands off. We're not going to ask any more questions. But I, I think it doesn't hurt. Right.
0: Well, and I think this is going to end up like the wine garden rule. Depending on which administration's in charge at any given time, it's going to swing back and forth. I mean, they just repealed uh, the, the Trump administration's rule right is uh, when they implemented this one right
1: well well they did that in 21 because there was an original rule in 21 that was biden and Mm -hmm. then and now this clarification in 2024 but
0: so and so depending on what the election does later this year we may see in 2025 something all over again a little different
1: yeah and you know this this dol change is strictly for purposes of applying the fair labor standards act it doesn't at least technically doesn't apply to state level Laws that can be different, or the question of whether someone's an independent contractor for things other than minimum wage and overtime. So, like
0: the IRS rules, you can you could qualify maybe under the IRS rules, you know, uh, and not you know, so the employer is not expected to do withholding all that. But under the DOL side, you'd still have you could still have an issue. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think though, you know, once something like this gets adopted and courts start applying it, then you get cases out there and opinions it sort of becomes the default. But, but, you know, my bigger takeaway on this whole independent contractor thing for 2024 is I I really don't think it's changing much. Um, I, I think, like I said, if you were an independent contractor in November of 2023 and you operate under the same terms and under the same rules as you did, then you're at the same risk anyway, whether you are or not, I don't know. But, I don't know. I don't know that this this change made a huge difference in in that fact about whether you are or not an independent contractor. And
0: there's litigation. So we'll see. this, you know, it just takes one court in a northern district of Texas to, to <laughs> put something on hold. And uh, so this could all be on hold before March 11th.
1: It's actually interesting, you know. Um, there's that case that just got argued before the Supreme Court about, uh, about agency Chevron? deference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked about Chevron, I think, last last January, and we and, did. Yeah, we yeah. did. Under similar circumstances, talking about the wage and hour cases, um, you know, if somebody gets a judge to bite on that, um, and, and it, look, if the Supreme Court says there's no Chevron deference, then who's the DOL to say? what the factors should be, and you know, the wrong judge or the right judge, depending on your perspective, might say, oh, that's something Congress has mm-hmm. to actually spell out in detail in legislation. And if they don't, the agency doesn't have the power to make a rule or make an interpretation of it. So it'd be real interesting to see yeah. what happens with that litigation.
0: Yeah, that case, well, it's supposed to be heard, I think, or
1: decided by the end of this term, right? The believe, the yeah. Supreme the sh- Court yeah. case on yeah. Chevron, yeah. yeah. But then, then the, the trickle-down impact of that on any of these lawsuits about the DOL's final rule. Mm-hmm. Well, it'll just it'll just
0: create a ton of lawsuits. I mean if Chevron goes if the court Supreme Court agrees that, that Chevron's dead you know, the, the plaintiffs, uh, representing business interest and everybody else, uh, will start just picking, you know, picking their cases. It'll be full-time employment for the department of justice for the next decade, probably.
1: Well, and, and for attorneys, right. I mean, if, if, if Chevron deference goes away and, and basically every regulation by every agency is subject to being struck down because it should have been, you know, Congress lacked the power to delegate it. And so, um, it goes back to the statute, um, there's any any number of things are going to be, you know, completely wiped out. It, and interesting to me, I listen sometimes to a podcast that's just the the oral recordings oh, yeah. of uh, arguments in front of the Supreme Court. And some of the justices who are, I think, leaning towards uh, overruling Chevron were talking about how every four or eight years, there's sort of this chaos of reinterpreting. Regulations. Well, I think the chaos of that every four years is going to pale in comparison to, you know, every regulation basically being subject to being challenged and Congress having to legislate with extreme specificity something like what's the test for an independent contractor or an employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act. That's just going to be a
0: mess. And if there's one thing Congress hasn't liked doing for the last two decades. It's actually legislating. I mean, and actually, you know, doing, dealing with, uh, you know, issues that call for compromise, especially, and, and coming through, uh, to, to create, you know, rules that, you know, either split the baby in half or, or, you know, please all sides or whatever. And so it would grind almost everything to a halt. The, the anarchist in me kind of wouldn't (laughs) mind seeing that. (laughs) It might be kind of fun, but so, uh, and again, if your listeners, if you want to dig deeper into all of that, episode 77 from last January is uh, in your podcast feed or at goodmorninghr.com. So then we had a couple interesting lawsuits that you kind of wonder if it's just a result of a single knucklehead manager or if it's, um, you know, something more pervasive in the company. But the first was that a company called Purdue Foods settled a lawsuit related to accommodations under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. And basically, pregnant employee, uh, she calls in uh, out, calls out of work, calls on sick uh, for a few days because she had some sort of infection. And as she was preparing to return, she told them, "I'm going to need regular access to water and a bathroom. In other words, she's pregnant. I mean, that's just, you know, that's kind of a symptom of being pregnant. But she's going to need regular access to water and a bathroom in order for her to be able to return. Somebody in HR determined that they couldn't accommodate her and instead said she should they're going to put her on leave and that she should qualify for short-term benefits. And then eventually they fired her, citing all her, her extended absence. And so a settlement doesn't mean the employer was necessarily truly liable or even in the wrong, but they just decided to pay this to make it go away rather than dealing with it. But what are the takeaways here for an employer dealing with a pregnant employee who's asking for some sort of assistance?
1: Well, don't don't force the employee on to leave as, as your version of the accommodation without talking with the employee about what they would prefer number one. Um, number two, there was some evidence in that case, I shouldn't say evidence, there was pleading in that case in the plaintiff's original complaint that the HR manager responsible for evaluating her request for an accommodation was um, notoriously hostile to accommodations for pregnant women and had, according to the you know double hearsay in the complaint, had never approved an accommodation for a worker who was pregnant. You know, other than that, the takeaway, I think, is, you know, evaluate each case kind of on its own merits. Don't have a knee-jerk kind of blanket response to someone saying, I need I need a rest, or I need access to the bathroom, or I need water. Um, and and I, the other big takeaway, and I say this to clients all the time, is you should give the employee the accommodation they're looking for unless it's an undue hardship. Um, and you being irritated about the employee having an accommodation is not an undue hardship.
0: And it's the Americans with Disability Act. I mean, does it sound like, just again, going by the pleadings, that at least in good faith, Purdue went through that interactive process that, you know, it's really called for in 88 guidelines.
1: Right. And there's, you know, there's a statute, it's relatively new, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act that specifically addresses this issue of of accommodations for pregnant employees. Um, And it has in it some examples of things that are, I mean, they can't make it be a reasonable accommodation, but they suggest that, that in most cases they will be. And it, it is you know, the ability to sit, drink water, um, park closer to the building, um, have flexible hours, uh, break time to use the bathroom, um, things like that, that you know, maybe a, an employer who's not as interested in accommodating their employees might shoot down without really considering it. And it requires there to be an actual interactive process, much like the ADA. Okay, so the Pregnant Workers Discrimination Act was passed in
0: 2022. The EEOC is writing the implementing, or is published, I think, a preliminary version of the implementing uh, rule. Does that mean the law is not really in effect until after the EEOC's guidance is published, or is it? Could a plaintiff bring something under the the Pregnant Pregnant Workers Disability Act right now?
1: I think someone could bring a claim under the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. Fairness I think Act. it just, yeah, yeah. It just the difference would be you don't have that EEOC interpretation. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to the courts, which is kind of what Correct. Chevron's all about, right? <laughs> <laughs> did,
0: did, did we write the law in a way that's easy for companies to understand and for the right. courts to interpret? Um, and basically, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act is is basically
1: a, a mini ADA just pointing at, at, at pregnant employees, Right. I think there were some cases out there that that had treated pregnancy and pregnancy-related uh, medical conditions and impairments differently, and I think the this the PWFA was just intended to close that gap and say, no, look, you have to accommodate people in your workforce who are pregnant who have these issues, okay. whether or not they rise to the level of being a disability or otherwise. Yeah. So. It was just kind of a hard month for employ-
0: uh, employers with pregnant uh, employees or who are mothers. It's just like we couldn't we couldn't do anything right this month. So Walmart agreed to settle a sex discrimination lawsuit for sixty thousand dollars. And the EOC alleged that Walmart, a Walmart in Iowa, uh, denied, which is probably one on every corner in Iowa, denied a department manager a promotion because the employee. Was a mother of young children, uh, and the the plaintiff of the EOC claimed that in explaining to the employee why she wasn't getting the promotion, they specifically mentioned that she was the mother of young children. So, um, and the the settlement pointed uh, or came after the federal district court, and you know their motion to dismiss said uh, pointed to a Supreme Court case that said that. Uh, the presumption that women prioritizing motherhood over work is uh, an impermissible uh, sex stereotype. So, sixty thousand dollars, small settlement. This probably wasn't widespread uh, across Walmart, but you know, it's another case where one manager saying the wrong thing can cause you some some real issues.
1: I think that's definitely the case of the knucklehead manager that you mentioned before, you know, somebody who would be as explicit as saying, you know, you're not getting this job because we have concerns that, you know, you won't have the time needed uh, because you're a a mother of young children. Uh, That's just that really, really, really bad management. Yeah. And I didn't think about it till you just said it, um, but maybe it's a small settlement and maybe it didn't go any further because they knew they had a knucklehead manager and they knew they, they had bad facts and they wanted to get it settled before the EOC found 10 or 12 or 20 more people in the same boat at, at Walmarts in and around Iowa and turned it into a class <laughs> yeah. action, you know.
0: Yeah, it may have been the cheapest route. I mean, $60,000, uh, Walmart spent three times
1: that on attorneys just getting to that okay. point, right? I mean, maybe, uh, but you know, I always tell people, you know, the the really bad cases, the ones where the company kind of did it, and and at least with my clients, when I feel like they've been, you know, they had a bad manager who said the wrong thing, I'm trying to settle that case as fast as I can, because it's only going to get worse, you know, um, it, when you're fighting a claim a statutory claim where if you lose the plaintiff is going to win their attorney's fees. Like the harder you make it, the more you fight, you're just, you're just making the end result worse. So settle it as fast as you can and get out. Um, and 60 grand, uh, you know, that's a, probably a pretty fair settlement for a case like that. So when can an employer
0: consider,
1: uh, an employee's status as a parent? I mean, to me, almost never, because you're you're almost without question you're stereotyping one way or the other, um, and that's exactly what Title VII gender discrimination is supposed to keep you from doing is assuming somebody can or can't do a job or is or isn't fit or whatever based on their gender. And if you're if you're stereotyping an employee and saying oh because you're a parent you're not going to be able to meet the hours requirements that's you know. The definition to me of discrimination. So your job there though, is to, if you, you know, hire the most qualified person or hire the person you think is the best fit. And then if there's productivity issues or, or other issues, attendance issues, you just have to manage the employee through that.
0: And so the, um, the generic big box retailer manager who says, well, every time we hire somebody with uh, young children they, they're they late they call in late they're unable to open work opening shifts and things change you know we always have these issues that's always my that's always my experience you're telling them just hire people who are otherwise competent but maybe check with their previous employers were they consistently you know working the schedules they were uh, you know supposed to work back then to how was their job performance and you know, past, you know, looking at past performances, you know, predicts, you know, future performance to some extent. So do that kind of stuff. But as far as their, you know, um, their actual status as a parent, that's hands off. Just don't, don't create the problem for you and the company to defend later.
1: Correct, and definitely don't don't be like this guy at the Walmart in Atumwa, Iowa, yeah. and tell the person, "I'm not giving yeah. you the promotion because you're the, a mom of young children." Like, yeah. so even if you're gonna discriminate, don't don't admit <laughs> to it and,
0: and don't give don't, don't, Certainly, don't put it in writing. But
1: that's de- that's definitely my advice. If you're gonna if you are gonna discriminate, gonna, gonna don't gonna put do it in writing. Dumb. Yeah, don't do it. A,
0: don't double down on it and put it in writing. <laughs> and let's take a quick break. Good morning, HR, is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. At Imperative, we help clients make well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business. This includes very thorough employment-related background investigations, but also all kinds of due diligence on vendors, clients, investment targets, or even joint venture partners. We're waiting to be of service at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit GoodMorningHR.com and click on Research Credits, and then select episode 132 and enter the keyword Richter, that's R-I-C-H-T-E-R. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out their webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Patrick Richter. The other thing that comes up with parents is, and it's come up with some of our clients as I've had conversations, I've even seen it uh, on HR job boards and, or, or not, or an HR discussion boards and in job postings. These remote employees who have small children at home, and, um, you know, employers are concerned that, well, if this person's, especially if they're remote and they're hourly and they have small children at home, they're not going to be able to give 100% of the focus that we need for this person doing the job if they're taking care of child, small children. And so I keep seeing references to policies or job postings that say, if you're working remote, you have to have child care for any children under X age. Do you think that'd pass muster under under this
1: uh, under Title Seven? I, I think that's dicey for sure, and I would I sure wouldn't recommend it um, because again, I think you're you're sort of stereotyping uh, the employee and their ability to to do the job. Maybe there's somebody else at home. I I don't know what you know. I don't know what having childcare means in that context. You have to employ someone in the home is a is you know your other parent or, or right. partner or spouse, you know, sufficient. Um, I also don't know how you would police that.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's my concern as, uh, you know, does, as HR, how are we going to monitor that? Are we going to start keeping a list of certain employees with children and certain employees without children? And, and when the first time you take a uh, some sort of you know, disciplinary action against an employee who, because they don't have childcare for their, their small child. What about all the other employees that you may or may not know about who don't have the same or in the same situation?
1: Right. Uh, You know, so we're going to, we're going to bar you from working remotely unless you uh, affirm you don't have Netflix. So you can't sit, (laughs) you can't sit on your couch and watch TV. Exactly. Uh, No, my, my guess, Mike, is that that, Putting that in a job description or putting that in some kind of posting is a little bit of a way to, to self-select those people out of the pool of applicants more than anything else. I'm not saying that anybody in particular is doing that on purpose for that reason. But you know, back to your example, and it, it's a crossover a little bit, but you know, the manager who has experience with employees with young children and that uh, those employees are, are late or less productive or whatever – you know, baking that into the job listing is a way to screen those people out on the front end, maybe.
0: Well, that's, I mean, and that's the, you know, when you you look at a lot of the fair chance hiring ordinances across the, the country, uh, you know, some some jurisdictions are saying you can't mention, you know, things like clean background check required or even mention the existence of a background check, a criminal background check process. Until after you've made an offer, uh, New right. York City being an example of that. So, I mean, the thought is, and I'm not sure I agree with the reasoning, but that you're you're dissuading applicants just by even saying that we're going to do a criminal background check. That you're dissuading people from applying. Uh, I think you know, depending on on the industry, it probably makes some sense to to weed weed those candidates out uh, earlier in the process if if you know their past behavior.
1: Makes them your less less uh, least ideal candidate, right? I think I think you know some of those some of these statutes. I'm a defense. I'm primarily a defense employment lawyer, so some of the statutes just seem like you know hanging extra weight on our clients and and how they want to go about doing business. But I do think some of them are well intentioned, and and I think that's probably one of them. And, And I think where companies, hirers, employers run into trouble is you, you try to solve a, a relatively thorny problem with with a blanket rule, mm-hmm. right? Like, if we don't want hourly employees working remotely if they're not going to be productive and they're going to be distracted. Okay, well, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to write a rule that says, if you're working remotely, you you have to have childcare if you have a small child in the house. It's, it's shifting the burden of Really managing that employee and making sure they're doing what they're supposed to do from the company whose job it probably ought to be to the employee. And it
0: creates, it just makes it, I think it makes managers' jobs easier, at least in their minds, because now I don't have to manage performance. The first time I'm annoyed by this employee because I tried to reach them over Zoom and they didn't answer. And I, I say, oh, you know, and I happen to know that they don't have childcare. Okay, so they're not doing their job, so now I'm going to lower the boom. I'm going to use a stick to, to you know, claim they're violating company policy rather than managing the employee, which is always more effort than you know, the manager often wants to take.
1: Right, and it's almost always the answer. If you call me and you say, hey, we have this issue, what do we do about it? I'm going to say you got to manage the employee through it rather than make some blanket assumption or a blanket rule and try to avoid the, the sort of hard work that you're talking about.
0: And then finally, there was a report this month, um, and you know these are always these kind of reports are always kind of suspect to me when you look at you know who's writing them. And this one, this report was issued by a company that uh, publishes an employer training and does employer training work. But that, but the report was that uh, employee noncompliance cost larger businesses an average of 1.6 million dollars per year, uh, on average across the com- those those businesses. So. That included non-compliance from with HR policies, but also everything from cybersecurity to accounting. And we've talked about the cases related to pregnancy and how you should handle those and, and managing mothers and those kind of things. But you know, when you, when we're we're talking about all these things, opening the company up to fraud because of your cybersecurity policies or your accounting policies or all the different ways that we've got policies and procedures in place, and then sometimes employees just don't comply with them. I'm sure you see examples of it almost every day in working with with sure. your, your clients. When you're looking at an employer's compliance structure and, and how they uh, educate their employees and how they monitor the compliance, are there things that you that you see that really work well that employers should really have as part of their their program and making sure that their employees are complying with the policies and procedures?
1: Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just communicating the policies in the first place. You know, handing an employee a 90-page handbook on day one and telling them to flip to the back and sign the acknowledgement that they read it is about what most people do. Uh, and I don't think that that really is, is helpful. Um, and And the other side of that coin, I think, is, and I say this a lot to companies when they're asking me to either look at a handbook or help them put one in place or to revise it, is... Policies and procedures are great if they reflect what you actually do and you actually follow them. You know, I want to be able to point to that when, when you go to let somebody go and you say, Oh, this person was working remotely and they failed to follow our remote work policy. Great. But Is that really the way the remote works at your company? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that really, and and are you gonna enforce it for other employees or are you just using it as a hook to get rid of somebody that you otherwise decided you don't want in the workforce anymore? So, you know, Mm -hmm. the worst thing in the, not the worst thing in the world, that's very much hyperbole, but a very bad thing in my experience with companies is a a really well-written, clear, concise, Uh, employee policy manual that doesn't reflect the reality of how that company operates on a daily basis. Well, and
0: you get frontline supervisors, especially frontline managers who say, yeah, that's the policy, but we need to get this work out the door or we need to get this thing done. And so just do it this way this time. And, you know, and HR will, you know, they'll never know. Uh, And I think there's you know, sometimes the, the pressures that those frontline managers feel to you know, to deal with the administrative burden of following the policies and procedures and just execute on whatever they're trying to get done. You know, they put the employees in those those situations where they sometimes push employees here, we'll just, you know, just do this and we'll deal with the the other stuff later. And I think that's, that puts uh, the company at risk and, 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 you know, certainly when you're talking about safety or things like that
1: puts employees at risk. For sure. Talking about safety, I, you know, you, I don't think there's ever any excuse for cutting corners or bending the rules on safety, but there are a lot of other rules sometimes that, you know, you just need an exception. Right. Um, you, you know, I
0: right. don't think
1: you can be sort of slavishly devoted to your employee handbook at times if it's going to stop you from getting the job done. And you gotta just got to a process that, that has for documenting
0: be, that too. Here's what we did yeah. and here's
1: why. Yeah. And, and that needs to be, you know, the exception and not the rule. It needs, you can't, you can't you, you can't just have managers uh, basically eviscerating the employee handbook by, by you know, never following it. But I know that's a that's definitely a balance. Um, it's one of those things that you you sort of have to take it on a case-by-case basis and say, you know, at, at in, in this moment, what's the most important thing? That we fill out these 17 forms before we finish this work or that we finish the work and get it out the door, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Patrick. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.